I'm Paul Comfort, and welcome to a very special edition of the award-winning podcast, Transit Unplugged. On today's episode, we continue our seven-part series where we visited seven major CEOs of transit systems in Australia, the land down under. On today's episode, I'm pleased to bring you an interview with Howard Collins, who is CEO of Sydney Trains, which is the suburban passenger rail network serving the city of Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. He's also the CEO of the New South Wales Train Link or the statewide system there as well. This massive train system covers a core of over 500 miles of track, 178 stations over eight lines, has train frequencies just one right after the other. Howard Collins is the mastermind and the CEO of this system. He was the former COO of uh, the London Underground and now leads up this major system that you will be amazed to hear about. He also took us on a tour of their new rail operations center, which is a a great, large, massive facility, which is one of the most technologically advanced operations control centers I've ever been a part of. We were there just before it opened. I got to sit in what he called the Captain Kirk seat and look up on the massive world's largest television screen up on the front where they have all kinds of information displayed. They brought together all kinds of operational controllers from around the network, all in one protected facility. This is an amazing man leading an amazing system. I'm so happy we were able to bring it for you today on Transit Unplugged. Let me know what you think. What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals in North America. This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort, and today we continue our series of Australia, Transit Down Under. And it's exciting today to be in Sydney, uh, a major capital city. I know it's not the capital city, but for the world, this is where people think about when they think of Australia, just as an FYI. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, thanks, Paul. Great to be here. Yes, it's the Sydney Harbour Bridge. It's the Opera House. Mm-hmm. It's the image of Australia as well as, I think, uh, uh, New South Wales. And that's the capital. Sydney is the capital of New South Wales. Okay. Well, great to be with you. We are actually recording this in your central train station. Tell me about this and, and the network a little bit that you oversee as CEO, Howard. Well, we're in the Bradfield Room, uh, named after John Bradfield, really the architect of the modern uh, sort of suburban transit system. In the sort of early 1900s, he went around the world. I think he even went to to the States, London, Europe, and he looked around and saw these fantastic electric transit systems. And he came back to Australia with a big report saying, I need to build a suburban railway. And he did a great job. In fact, we're still building part of his plan even today. Is that right? Yeah, he's a very important man to us as far as the uh, railway is concerned. So Howard, uh, Howard Collins has two roles, and now I hear you actually have four roles. Tell us a little bit about your role here as the CEO of multiple layered organizations that make up the, the rail transit in this city. Well, I suppose the first thing is we're very proud that we are the biggest. In fact, you could put all the passengers of all the other capital cities uh, together, and it wouldn't quite add up to the number of people we carry on the Sydney and New South Wales network. And how many is that? So we're we're now topping about 430 million journeys a year. We have gone from a really low base in the early days, but now in the last five years, our challenge has been that growth, 37% increase in the last five years. And the more we put in more trains, the more people come. 
So wow. my, job, my job as Chief Executive of Sydney Trains and now New South Wales Trainlink is really that vertically integrated organisation. We still quarry uh, stuff out of mines to build the ballast, but we maintain the tracks, the infrastructure, the, the trains themselves, most of those trains themselves, the staff, the drivers, the guards or conductors, you'd call them, and also the, the, all the station staff as well. 14,000 people, about 10,500 uh, or so in Sydney trains and the remainder in New South Wales train link. And how much money does that cost every year? Well, it costs about $4 billion Australian dollars okay. really to run this place. And don't forget, we go to Melbourne and Brisbane with our long-distance uh, trains, our, our XPTs, as well as serving the metropolitan area of Sydney and many other cities around New South Wales. And tell us about what type of service are you running? So we've got the electric trains we saw here. What other type of service are you running? Are there different layers of service? Well, I always say we're a little bit like Australian animals. We've, we've ended up with a quite an interesting, unusual beast of a railway. You start out in places like Kiama, a sort of electrified network right out in, you know, 100 or so kilometres down south. It really is a rural railway. And then as the train gets into Wollongong, you start serving an intercity, you know, Long Island Railroad sort of ex experience. Yeah. And then you get, the train gets as far as probably uh, Hurstville, and then it almost changes the metro and goes underground, and we try and run a three-minute service. That's one train. So we're sort of a, a multifunctional railway. And of course, uniquely on the electric system, our trains are all double-deck trains. Big, 400-ton, 2,000 people, eight-car trains. We just rode it coming here. It's phenomenal. We rode one of the newer cars and said we're one of the new 24 cars. Absolutely. Yeah. Just off the uh, off the manufacturing shelf, 24 new trains. Fantastic opportunity. Another 17 coming. Who built them? They're built in China. Okay. Uh, uh, joint venture, obviously, with, with Downer, the Australian partner, okay. with our Chinese partners. We built 78. And then another 24, we're almost finished that delivery, another 17 on top. And they're fantastic trades, you know, live CCTV streaming back to our control centre, great comfort, good LED lighting, a great train, out of the box, reliability, 10 times what our old trains are. Really? That's something. So I'm sure you always have a lot of construction projects going on. As we were riding in, I saw train car after train car full of ballast. Looked like you were doing some new work out here or... I think that's the challenge. It's, uh, as my old American boss, Tim O'Toole, said, it's like running a marathon and doing open heart surgery at the same time. We're rebuilding, <laughs> rebuilding this place at the same time of trying to run the, as many trains as possible because we're busy. We carry twice as many people the weekend we did 10 years ago. Wow. Because of the new ticketing system, because it's almost... Uh, next to nothing to travel at weekends. We get a hell of a lot of people just coming down to Sydney, traveling around the network, doing all the social stuff that they love doing at weekends in Sydney. And we've seen a huge growth in that area. So how did you end up here? Tell us a little about your journey, your career well, journey. Well, um, that could take half an hour in itself, <laughs> Paul, but I would say I'm a railway man. I dream about railways and I probably have for 59 and three quarter years. I started life as left school at 18 and joined London Transport uh, in September 1977, long before you were born, Paul. <laughs> but I would say... Um, I had always, as a kid, had an interest in anything on wheels, planes, trains, motorbikes, you name it. Uh, and I got a job in London Transport. I did most grades, got on a training scheme, drove trains, signaller, did all sorts of jobs, got into general management, 
really got excited about projects. I was involved in the opening of the Docklands Light Railway. I've been there. The Jubilee yeah. Line extension, that oh, fantastic that? project. That is amazing. Uh, a fantastic opportunity to learn about new technology. And that's that's where I had the passion to, to do new things and reinvest in the railway. And ended up as the Chief Operating Officer for London Underground in 2008. What I an was, honor, huh? I just What was, did you start out as when you I, first got in I there? Think, I think what I started out as, a, as a basically a traffic administration trainee. 2,700 pounds wow. a year. It was incredible. Well, I gave lost my mum weight. I gave my, <laughs> I gave my mum 20, 20 pounds and the rest is mine. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. yeah. And you went from that to CEO. Yeah, and I think so. I think one of the things Exciting. is whilst I recognize, you know, getting new people into our organization or any organization is great. But some of the people who've had that life career journey through the organization, you remember things, you recognize things. You know, sometimes operational incidents only happen once in a lifetime. Sometimes things that you can see from projects. We learn a lot, I think, not so much from all our successes, which has many, many fathers or mothers. Right. Sometimes i found I learned the best from perhaps things which didn't go too well and I had yeah. to have a go next time. Failure's an orphan, right? So Absolutely. We learn from it and move on. So yeah. what did you do after 2008 when you were CEO? Well, I, I was... Uh, did all sorts of things. We had a fantastic opportunity of two great events. One was the London Olympics. I was put in charge of all the public transport delivery for the London Olympics. Wow. Uh, there were a lot of Aussies there who'd learned a lot from how well the 2000 Olympics worked in Sydney's, Sydney. And uh, oh, that was a great time. It didn't rain for the four weeks, which is incredible. Wow, for what a miracle. Huh? Uh, we, we got, you know, 90% of the people traveling um, on the public train network. Uh, they gave up their free BMW show-driven cars. Uh, I remember meeting uh, the American, I think it was the basketball team, um, on the train uh, because they decided they wanted to travel the tube. But it was a wonderful occasion and, and a great public transport event. And then the other thing I feel very proud of was celebrating 150 years of London Underground and putting a steam train back underground. Nice. Uh, which I think myself and Sir Peter Hendy had this idea. I think everyone else thought we were crazy, but it was a fantastic event and having, you know, three of the royal family turn up for oh, celebrating nice. our, our, our yeah. having all the um, railways around the world coming and joining that celebration in yeah. January 13 was fantastic. I bet you. I met Sir Peter. He and uh, Andy Byford and I spoke at a conference at APTA in LA a few years ago. Well, the, Great guy. The interesting thing, there is a very, very small number of us who are now scattered around the world who, who really come from that source of... Uh, of the UK and London, you know, you've got Neil Scales up here running Brisbane. He and I worked together, Andy Byford. We were general managers together in London Underground. Ian Dobbs, Rob Mason, Andy LaSala. There is an, an amazing small community out there. You asked me about how I ended up here. Yeah, so let's go there. That's yeah, how yeah. did I end up here. I actually was very comfortable doing my job in I'm London. I'm sure, and The yeah. phone rang, you know. <laughs> hey, we're reorganising Sydney. Are you interested? And actually worked out the great opportunity. You know, my wife's got a brother here. My son was off to university. It all fell into place. And after 36 years of working for London Underground and everyone thought I was going to be there for the next 36, mm -hmm. I, I decided to make a move. And you know, Paul, it's the best thing I've ever done. And what year was that? 2013. Okay. Almost six years ago. Wow. And why was it the best thing you ever did? What? It's just, I think one of the things was just doing something different. And... Also, at the end of the day, when you're the chief executive, the buck stops with you. 
and I've sort of learned a lot from that and broadened my experience and my career from from understanding what uh, all sorts of people do in different sectors. And Australia has hit the golden age of rail. I think for the first time in probably 50 years, Australians realised public transport is the only way to get cities to work. Expanding cities like Melbourne and Sydney, which are going to grow from 5 million to 8 million in the next sort of 20 years, you can't drive you can't have that sort of culture of car anymore. You've got to look at London and New York and you'll see that public transport. And we've got about a third of the network we really need to run Sydney effectively. So my crusade, and one of the reasons why I wanted to come here, was to change what was an operator's railway where trains were dots on a diagram and customer service was only talk to customers when they really do pester you. Uh, to actually transform in this place where I feel proud that we are probably one of the most focused customer service railways in this part of the world. I know the others are catching me up and doing great things, but I would say that was a real focus. And the other thing was get investment mm. through from government to get more investment in rail, whether that's metros mm-hmm. or us. And I've been on a bit of a crusade, speaking wherever I can to say, this is what we need. And amazingly, the Aussies have been listening and I'm delighted to be working here and I look forward to, to many years to come. The only other thing, Paul, it's a great place to live. Yes. I mean, for a Brit, if you're going on holiday for two weeks a year, you might get down to the beach and enjoy the beachside experience, you know, twice a year if you're very lucky. Here I do this every weekend swim, sail, I uh, live near the beach. It's a fantastic experience and I jump on my train every morning. That's great. So tell us about how you're accomplishing those, those visions you have about customer service and the funding and, and those kind of things. What are you doing to make that happen? Well, I was very fortunate that um, when we started up our executive team uh, under Sydney Trains and New South Wales Train Link, we got some good people on board who really understood customer service. So we brought on board, for example, Liz Ward from New Zealand. She really revolutionized the customer service side. And basically we said to people, if you want to continue serving our customers in a proactive way, come and join us. If you really don't like customers and really do find it difficult to sort of engage, there is an opportunity for you to further your career or uh, somewhere else in a nice sort of way. And um, we've seen an amazing influx of people joining us who really do love customers who are out there every day and are prepared to do anything. Most of my stations have a chief executive, each one of them. I call them a chief executive. My local station, Woolaware, Brian Chan, a fantastic guy. He knows everybody. A CSA on that platform, I call him the chief executive because he knows what's going on. He helps old ladies across the road. He mm-hmm. does. He sorts out things. He understands the local customer. And I've got about 150 of those stations where that one person knows the customer is out there every day, sweeping up, keeping the place clean, making sure that everything is immaculate and really engaged with, with our customers. That's a great, I don't know that other people do that actually on the transit system. Well, I know in Baltimore, I, we didn't have a train station kind of manager at each one who took accountability well, that, for that. that. That's it, a great way to do yeah, it. Yeah, and then they aren't managers. I think this is the interesting thing. These are frontline staff who, yeah. who just take on that responsibility. And I think it's about giving and empowering people right. 
to make some of those decisions, to feel that they have the responsibility. I mean, the other alternative is to, you know, de-staff stations, have the police turn up occasionally. What do customers say? They want people present. Right. They want to see people. You know, they recognise you can't have them 24 hours at a quiet station. But I have learned through the years that if you if you provide that customer model, people will then travel, they feel safe, they feel someone they can speak to. They're out of selling tickets anymore because with our Opal card, you're not in a ticket office secure world. You're out on the platforms and making sure things are right. And I think if you wander around the system, you'll see a lot of our staff aren't there. We changed the uniform, we upgraded the signing, uh, we got obsessed by the colour orange, as you can see around yes, the room here, Paul. Yeah. But I, did, I do think that's the big change. Yeah. The other uh, area, I suppose, is I had the opportunity to speak to our stakeholders about what we need to do in terms of investment. Mm-hmm. How do we need to up the system? We need to make sure the place is more reliable. We have things which are very old. You know, we've got a signal box up at Mount Victoria, which was modernised in 1911. <laughs> That's when they put electricity in the place because yeah. before it didn't have that. It had old lamps and rods and we are still pulling those huge levers up there to signal the trains. And whilst I love history and historic things in railways, we do have to modernise and we're now on that journey of improving our network by looking to the future and saying, how do we get greater capacity? And let's talk about that because I know that's the key here. You were telling me that that's kind of what you all did in London yep. and you're bringing that here. Tell us about that. Yeah, and I think it is, you know, it is a repeat story. It is looking at what others have done in the past and certainly what we did in London and many other cities have done the same is to say, how do we get greater capacity? We can't fit any more trains on the track with the current signaling system. We're, we're really running a timetable which is at the edge of its reliability. It runs well, but we have to run, make sure those trains don't hang around for more than 30 seconds. Otherwise, you know, things will slow down. And it's a bit like London, New York, with growth, what do you do? Well, you look at how do you make those trains go faster and more effective. And we've seen how European cities have put in digital systems, whether that's the CBTC system that we had in London Underground, or the more open system, which allows us to run those 140 freight trains which come through our network, European train control systems. And that's what we're going for. Okay. And we started that journey. We've got the first 900 million which will allow us to get capacity on some of our most congested lines. And then we believe that the network in the metropolitan area, we want to convert over. This will mean in-cap signaling to start with. This will mean automation in the congested areas. And in fact, for the lay person, it's about saying we can get our trains closer together. We can get them to operate in a very optimised condition following each other safely under computer control, rather than at the moment we have to allow for the longest freight train running on our tracks to keep those trains apart. Mm. I've seen it done, and I think there's an opportunity here in the next five to 10 years to improve our capacity, probably by 30 or 40%. That's gonna require you to hire a lot of new people, uh, train them. How do you manage a workforce of how many people did you say? Oh, about 13, 14,000. Yeah. yeah. How, how are you handling that? I mean, is that going well? And are you, are you in a constant hiring? Um... Well, railways traditionally, if you look at the operation engineering side, we have a very low turnover. People join us and, and want to stay. We are a, a good employer. And I think, you know, I, when I meet my train drivers and guards and 
customer service assistants who've joined us from the street, I often say, well, what job do you do before? I was a teacher or a policeman. I was someone who worked in the retail industry. Um, we're getting people of such great caliber into our network. I think that's a great investment for us. Yes. But there is a scarcity of those skills in engineering, mm. of uh, digital systems engineers, of signaling engineers, of electrical guys and girls. We are very interested in trying to ensure through training and through universities to try and get a pipeline of people through Australia. Particularly, we're very interested in getting the diversity balance. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to encourage more women to join us in that journey. You know, 20 years ago, we had our first female trained driver, um, which seems very, very late to the party considering most other railways probably had them 20 years before that. I've got 367 uh, female trained drivers and guards now, but in management, in engineering, we really want to work with those universities and maybe even schools to say there is a real future for both men and women in this rail industry. We're investing $50 billion in the next five to 10 years in, in the rail public transport area. And therefore, that must lead to great careers and great opportunities for people. Do you have a dedicated funding source or do you have to, uh, other than obviously the fares, or do you have to go back to the government every year and ask for money as part of the well, well, like most public transport areas, the fares cover something, but they don't cover the operational costs. Unless you're in London where, you know, fares, are, fares would give most Australians a heart attack, I think. <laughs> um, but I would say we have had a consistency of investment through government on the capital side of that. We have now basically had the investment stream for replacing all of our rolling stock now for new modern, so that's nice. either here or coming. We have investment in obviously metros, which will give us capacity. I think we just have to keep on that crusade, Paul, of making sure we're relevant to those people who are making those decisions. And I think for cities and states, the mobility of people Mm -hmm. moving them around from, from, from city to city or suburb to suburb requires great public transport. You know, Australians have, have travelled a lot. So they go to New York, they go to, right. you know, sort of London and Paris, they see all this public network and they come back and ask the question, well, why isn't it happening in Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane? And that's a good question. So it's our job to make sure it happens. And you've got 50 billion. So uh, again, are they? is that part of their annual operating budget or do you get a piece of the action on sales tax or property tax well, or anything like what, that? What has happened is uh, under this government, they've recycled a lot of the state assets. Okay. So the poles and wires, for example, which okay. transmit, have been leased long-term out and that returns big chunks of dollars back into the government's coffers. Their state... Uh, balance is in, in surplus and therefore a significant proportion of that uh, releasing or selling off has come into, the, into public transport okay. as opposed to other areas. We've sort of reprioritized. Generally, I found over 42 years, transport tends to be at the bottom of the shopping list for, for government investment. I think what governors realise, you've got to invest in schools and education mm -hmm. and, and hospitals, but transport's got to be that centrepiece of gaining the ability to move around from schools and hospitals, the ability right. to keep the, the cities going. So yeah, it's the, it's the arteries of the city, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. And I think we have been fortunate that there has been some asset recycling and some, some sales of those assets which have sat in the public sector for years, which has given, up, given us that cash injection, enabled us to capital invest 
in those programs. Okay. So when I was in Victoria earlier this week, they outsource a lot of the operations. How do you handle that here? Yeah, we do a lot. I mean, it's quite interesting. Depends on state by state. Um, Traditionally, in public transport, New South Wales has been, you know, a public transport operated and owned business. But over the last 10 years, the bus side has almost gone completely over to contract management. Is that part of what you oversee? Well, we yeah, absolutely. If you think about two-thirds of our fleet now is run and managed by Downer over a PFI deal for 30 years, we manage that contract. And uh, a lot of our work, whether we're working on the tracks or cleaning or anything else, we keep the, the great tension between private and public sector. So I have a cleaning team, about a third of our network. They are absolutely on the money because they know they have to compete and, and uh, make or buy, as we call it, against the, the private sector, which we utilise as well. That's good. And so I think there's a, there's a mix. And people talk about, our oh, Sydney Trains, it's you know, a state-run organisation. The you know, private sector could do better. I say to my guys, think like the private sector. Think about the cost and the operations as well as the efficiency. And we mix the best of both worlds. The one thing I'd always say about railways is I have come to the conclusion, Paul, after many years, that a vertically integrated railway, whether it's private or public, is the way that gets the best deal for the customer. And I've seen in the UK slicing and dicing it with a you know, network rail running the tracks and the signalling, the train operating companies, of which there were 42, now slightly less, trying to fight each other to get access to the railway. And being a commuter of one of those experiences, and I won't name the railway, (laughs) it didn't really do the customer a lot of good. So I'm agnostic about private or public. I think you can mix it. But um, make sure there's someone accountable for running the show. And I know every day... I'm accountable when every customer comes up to me and talks to me about their experience. Nine times out of ten, it's very positive. I always wear my name badge. People joke, it's so my wife recognises me when I get home late at night. She remembers my name. (laughs) Uh, But I think, Paul, it's about actually being accountable. And um, I think in Sydney Siders terms, they... You know, as I walk the street sometimes, they say, hey, aren't you that pommy guy running the, the railways? And I said, yep. And most people say, we have seen a difference. Most people say, we've got things we've got to do still. Uh, but I'm actually warned by the general sentiment of Sydney Siders to say they have seen a difference. Clearly. I mean, it's clearly, I would, I would agree with that. Having just been here a few days and ridden it, it's, it's but there's awesome. A, there's a lot more to do. And yes. I, you know, well, I, let's I, talk about that. What's coming next? Uh, what's on the near-term horizon for you? Well, arrival of more new trains, okay. new inner-city fleet, the regional fleet, you know, a Spanish provider for one. You got um, CAF working with CAF, you? you're working yeah. with. It will be fantastic for the regional rail. First uh, South Korean train coming, Rotem, into new inner-city fleet with UG. Uh, which is an Australian company, that will be interesting. As I talked earlier, the digital systems, the reinvestment in some of our stations to get step-free access. We've done 90 stations. We're putting lifts at 90 stations, made them accessible to our customers. Very important. Um, Ensuring we integrate with the new metro system, which is coming very soon. Um, 
you know, from a Sydney Siders point of view, they don't care whether it's run by one company or right, another. Right. We've got to show a seamless approach to transport. There is so much going on. That's why it's so exciting. Yeah. Tell us about this the station that just got renovated that you went to this week. Oh, yeah. And, and kind of like a, that's a nice anecdote about how what, what this job is really about that you do. Yeah, and I, and I think it is, you know, Sydney's a bustling suburb. But when you get out further, you realise the history of New South Wales was really developed by the railroads. Mm -hmm. You know, when they got to a place called Millthorpe in 1876, the only way to get to Millthorpe was by train. In the 1940s, this station uh, produced more freight than any other station in New South Wales. And it was all the, the goods and services and farming were loaded onto this station and went down to Sydney. You can imagine the place. But in the 50s and 60s, people got cars, the place became more and more run down, freight went on roads. Mm. And then by 1990 or 1986, the station was closed, derelict. The community was dying. But then in the 2000s, they realised that country towns in New South Wales had something to offer. That rural lifestyle, the restaurants, the sort of community engagement, and the power of Millthorpe as a town really over the last 10 years has, has been banging on the door saying, we want to reopen the station. We want to be part of the New South Wales rail network again. And uh, yesterday, 300 kilometres west of Sydney, um, I jumped on the train and we stopped for the first time in 33 years on a new little platform we built with this beautiful 1886 station and 500 people there were to greet us. 42 people got off the train and it was such a, uh, a great event. And railways for many towns are something about, you know, a resurrection and redevelopment of, of their um, communities. And now Millthorpe is, a, is one of the thriving destinations to go as a tourist. It's got a Michelin-hatted restaurant. It's got a chocolate factory. It's got, you can walk down the streets, you know, and it's a time warp. You could tie your horse against the railings and almost go in like a Western-style spoon yeah. bar and order your whiskey. You know, it's that, right. it's that quaint. And lots of people like going there. But, but you can only go there by, by car before that. So, great event. Yes. The purpose of railways is not just running. It's we in the New South Wales regions, it's a community engagement. And uh, we spruced up the place, uh, cut down 40 years of growth of trees and grass wow. and, and renovated the station a bit more, put in a few modern facilities like CCTV and stuff like that. And um, it was a great occasion, a great occasion. We've got a few more to do. Yeah, so from that kind of history of yeah. rail in this area, I want to take you to the future of my last question, which is, so you've been doing this for over 40 years. Yeah. And what do you see 10 years from now? What's your vision? Leaders like you almost always know where they're headed. Where are we headed for 10? What's this? What is Sydney Rail going to look like 10 years from now? Well, 20 years from now? Well, let, let, let me tell you. <laughs> we have a 2056 strategy. Well, there you go. Going out to there. All right. I threaten all of those people that I'll still be here. <laughs> you be, might be. I'll be 97. <laughs> okay. But I do see... You know, a huge future for rail. You'll be Sir Howard Collins well, by then. Yes, yeah, I'll, be well, I'll be well underground by then, <laughs> in more ways than one. But Paul, I would say the vision I've got is that within the next ten years, we'll be carrying half a billion people uh, on our network. 
we'll be respected as being one of those world global cities which has a really good transport system, metros, Sydney trains, buses. Uh, we'll be keeping our heads above water in terms of competing with those other cities who've really got, a, got ahead of us in terms of their service. And I do see tomorrow's generation, which you know my son is just one of them, don't want to drive around. That's they right. want to be engaged. They want to be connected with the community. And I do think one way we can do that is to have really good public transport. Um, and I'm passionate about that. And you know, every breath I take and every time I spring out of bed on a Monday morning, I feel that we're getting there. I just want to give people the inspiration and the leadership to, to ensure that we continue that journey well after I've uh, gone down some track uh, in the future. And Paul, I travel on it every day. I've clocked up 133,000 kilometres, uh, which I record every day how many kilometres I've done. I've probably known most of my 14,000 staff wow. by, by sight. Uh, and I would say it's not me. I think it's the whole of my team are doing a great job out there. That's wonderful. Well, you're doing an awesome job. I can't wait to see what it's going to look like in 10 years because I know you're going to take it there. You've already made so many improvements in the six you've been here. I feel like I'm talking, you kind of look like Michael Caine. You sound like, I'm talking to the Michael Caine of transport here. Pretty awesome. And uh, very excited to be with you here today. And I know after this, you're going to show us your operations control Absolutely. center. And this is, uh, it's been a phenomenal visit to Australia. And thank you so much for being our guest on Transit Unplugged. You've been listening to Transit Unplugged, powered by Trapeze Group. To stay up to date, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, or join the conversation at transitunplugged.com. Thanks for listening.